This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 34, with your hosts, Ray Herto of HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And today we are joined by... Josh Brandt from Stack & Company. Hey, Josh. Hi, how's it going? What's going on? We're neighbors. It's fun to actually be in your office just a block away. Yeah, you were walking over here and you pass this building all the time. And little do you know that we're just peeking out the window, watching the world around us. <laughs> Recording the world's most popular podcast. I'm very excited to be on it. Thank you guys for having me. Josh, your one-year-old daughter is uh, home from sick from school today? That's right. With grandma and grandpa? With grandma and grandpa right now. They're doing awesome, but my wife is traveling for business at the moment. And so uh, uh, I'm relatively new at the parenting thing. And uh, you learn pretty quickly how much you rely on daycare when you can't send your kid there. Do you think she's faking it because she doesn't she didn't want to go to school? No, she loves school. Yeah, she loves okay, school. Good. She like loves all of her friends. There's like so much enrichment and stuff. They they Can one-year-olds fake it? Of course. Uh, They're smart. No, I don't know. I don't have I defer to you guys. I don't know. My son's too. He's uh he's pretty good at telling me what he wants and doesn't want. So <laughs> I trust him that he's not lying yet. Did you guys see the email I got yesterday from an attorney in Belgium regarding my uh yeah, I got, I got really, really nervous and sad for you. Yeah, so apparently I have a $5 million inheritance somewhere. I just need to provide this guy my social security and bank account with routing. And like $3.5 million in order to get your five? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There you go. Pretty pretty sad way to learn of the passing of a uh, next of kin, you know, from uh, an email through a fax machine at about 9 p.m. Was, from a Nigerian prince, maybe? Yeah. Sad, sad. Well, my condolences. Thanks. Let's kick it off. Let's kick it off. Josh, give us the most kick-ass introduction on Stack and & Company and a little on your background, because uh, just let our listeners know sort of what you guys are and what you're about. Sure. So Stack & Company is a pretty unique firm in the marketplace in that we are both an architecture and a construction company. And we think of ourselves as architecture and construction, not design build, because we really have a focus on unique, challenging, ambitious, most often very design-forward projects across various typologies. We do some high-end single-family homes. We do a fair amount of smaller multifamily developer work. We do a lot of restaurant, retail, and related build-outs in the city. And then we do a bunch of projects that are cool, crazy, interesting, different, that don't necessarily fit into another bucket. And for a lot of companies, those like quote-unquote special projects are sort of the dumping ground for miscellaneous. But for Stack, the special projects are really where our soul lies, that it is how we sell our work. It is how we recruit our staff. It is what gets me up in the morning and that we really focus on designing, building, and often both some of the coolest stuff around. How did Stack & Go come to be? So what, where were you before? How did you get from where you were to where you are now? Sure. So my co-founder, Andrew Keating, and I were both project managers at Shawmut Design and & Construction. And we were actually working on some of the same projects at the Marine Biological Lab in Woods Hole, Mass. Shawmut's based in Boston. That was pretty remote. And so we had this combination of like not necessarily having a ton of support from the big company mothership, but still having to execute and sell the client on all of this overhead and all the value that it was creating. And then a lot of long rides in the car home to talk about how we were doing all of the work and that there was a lot of extra overhead there. <laughs> So that's like sort of what most specifically got us to hang our own shingle. 
But layered in there was also, uh, we were doing purely negotiated work, uh, not bid where the clients expected a high level of service, really close coordination with the architect. And we found that even in that model, the process was ripe with inefficiencies and that there was whole uh, games of telephone around what is the toilet, what is the sink, architectural, structural, mechanical drawings, all showing different things for the same place. And we really thought that there must be a better way to do it. So we, from day one, were doing design and construction under one roof because we fundamentally believe that in order to execute projects that are anything other than the most basic vanilla typology, you must have architecture and construction working together hand in glove. And we really, as a founding vision for the company, believe that architecture and construction are two different expressions of the same idea, not totally separate things done in silos, and absolutely not things that should be done in a confrontational manner, that the two need to be like as in sync as the offensive line and the quarterback are on a, on a football team. So that's a good transition into the question I was about to ask you, which is that I think some would listen to this and say, well, as the developer or as the owner, my architect is my fiduciary. They, they have my interests at heart, legally even. The, the contractor doesn't necessarily. How would you respond to that? That is legitimate, that there are definitely lots of people out there who like having uh, two parties, one being a check on another. I think that there are definite advantages to packaging them together, including ownership of errors and omissions, things missed on the documents, speed, and the fact that we are often pricing budgeting while we are designing, that by the time we actually had a set of construction documents together, we've priced the thing four times already. We know where it's going to be. Certainty of outcome and generally a holistic, integrated mindset whereby we are very, very focused on what the project's overall goals are and how we execute best on those as opposed to, hey, I'm just here to build it. If it's designed wrong or if it doesn't look right, well, they can pay me a change order to fix it later. That That's just not our mentality. So all of that being said, I think that's something that, uh, again, differentiates us is a little bit is that we are doing both the architecture and construction for about 35, 40% of our projects, depending on how you count. So the majority of our construction work, we are doing with outside architects. And we also have a fair amount of architecture work that we are not building as well. So we are a unique hybrid organization that can deliver projects in a few different ways and also plug into projects in a few different ways. So that was actually going to be my question. So if I came to you and I just wanted to utilize your design services or your architectural services, I can certainly do that. If I just wanted to leverage your build services, I could do that as well, or I could use both if I wanted to. Absolutely. And then even some further variants from there. So we're working on an academic project right now where we are the architects taking the project through design development. And then there's going to be a competitive design build process after DD for to produce the construction documents and the construction. We are working on a couple of projects right now for uh, uh, national clients that are locations all over the place that have in-house design departments where they are doing the sort of concept level design internally 
handing it off to us for construction documents and then construction as well. That doesn't mean that like, hey, every opportunity that has any amount of design or construction we're interested in. No, we have our our specialty and there's not a fit on every project. However, for the right types of projects, we have a lot of different ways to plug in and add value. Do you have interior designers in within your organization as well? So are you not only doing the architecturals, you're also doing the, the you know, down and dirty design, like picking the Stru- tiles. Structural and engineering too? Structural engineering is not in-house. Interior- you are a structural engineer though. My undergraduate degree is in structural engineering, <laughs> but I would say that in terms of what information I can wield on a project about structure, it is entirely based on having the better part of two decades building as opposed to what I learned in college, you know, however long ago it was. Didn't we talk about that earlier on a pod? You know, structural engineering can be way overdone on certain projects. And the question would be, you know, yeah, like... we had Hayes and O'Neill Right, on, right. And we talked a lot about that, how right. folks can design to their stamp or to their insurance requirements. It can be very rigid. Yeah. Or you can have or some can, bounce in the floor. Well, or, No, or you can run the calcs and <laughs> think of things intelligently and thoughtfully and design appropriately. But you'll see the same thing in mechanical engineering, too. Some mechanical engineer who doesn't want to do the dirty work could size a chiller to X, whereas really the building would perform quite nicely at a much, at Y, tons of cooling. So it's always those types of... One of our project managers likes to say that you don't need a structural engineer to make sure that the building stands up. You need a structural engineer to make sure that it barely stands up. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. I'm not sure if I answered the question, but yes, we do interiors as well. And we have a lot of focus, our architecture practice, especially the interiors within the hospitality space. Um, And we've done some very, very cool work there. I don't think that we would take on, we haven't been approached for a purely interiors project, um, but uh, uh, we we can be and have been engaged for everything soup to nuts. Like, hey, here is generally what I want. Negotiate with the landlord, design it, permit it, spec it, build it. As a developer, we could come to you and say, here's here's my approval plans from the zoning board. See you at the finish line. 100%. Nice. So was it hard for you to kind of let go of your day job? You know, how did you build the company to where it is today? So our origin story is fundamentally intertwined with the recession. So Andy and I managed our exit from Shawmut extremely well. Uh, They were awesome to us. Shawmut is a fantastic company, fantastic company to work for. And we were actually... They're an ESOP, right? They're an ESOP, that's correct. Employee Stock Ownership Program. Which is a little bit of a Ponzi scheme, but that's maybe a topic for uh, <laughs> uh, another, another we'll podcast. we come back to that. That uh, depending on when you get in, the, the share values get diluted pretty quickly. Oh, interesting. Um, uh, uh, so Shama's a fantastic company. Fantastic company. Is, emo- is, is emerging. Um, I feel like all good stories start in the mailroom and the recession. That's like the moral of the last few pods. So we, we managed our, our exit from Shawmut that such that we were on site in construction, generating revenue on our first project less than a month after our last paycheck. So for a lot of entrepreneurs, everybody goes through that phase of, hey, I'm not ready to like quit my day job yet, but I'm doing this nights and weekends. And like, how do you break through? We were, we kind of took a long run out. We were sort of selling work six months before we even like knew we were going to do it. So we managed that well. And right around the time that that project was wrapping up, September of 08, there we had like 
two projects geared up to start right behind it in October of 08. And we're like, man, starting a business is awesome. This is easy. And then in a span of 72 hours, both those projects went away. And then we didn't see another dime of revenue, not profit, revenue for four or five months. And that, I think we, we obviously managed to survive that. But I think that I always start there in terms of our origin story because there's a certain resilience and grit that is required to take that kind of uppercut right out of the gate. And I actually think that in some ways it was a little easier to survive it because we were so small that we like didn't have any overhead. We didn't really have any employees, that it was easier to kind of weather the storm there. But we managed to, in uh, uh, 2009, get into construction on a project that really put us on the map. It's a 13,000-square-foot ground-up office building in Providence, Rhode Island, where we actually started the company, uh, made entirely out of used shipping containers. And uh, super challenging from a technical perspective, super interesting from an architectural perspective. And it's been written up all over the place, both in terms of print media and web media as well. And we always knew that we wanted to do projects that were like interesting and cool. And to have a project like that land in our lap so early on. And were there any weird regulatory challenges with doing that? I can just see a building inspector just generally being confused by the the exterior walls being corrugated (laughs) shipping containers. Of course. Like how how would my HERS rater approach that? Anyway. Well, and yeah. How do you install a window, you know? <laughs> Mark's already having nightmares. <laughs> well, no, Ray, that, that's a great question. And we actually convinced the owner to buy a couple of like the shittiest beat used containers that were just our like guinea pig sacrificial containers that we, you know, uh, tried out a few different window reinforcing details, tried a couple window installation details, realized where our soft spots were going to be in the envelope. And I mean, the, the massing of the building, it even like looked like our logo. So that, that project really sort of put us on the map. And How'd uh, you land that? Let me see here. Actually, right as I was leaving Shawmet, I was doing a lot of networking, knowing I needed to develop business. Just happened to meet an architect at an event. And then, you know, a month or so later, like, hey, Joe, I've like hung my own shingle, uh, wanted to connect. It's like, so funny. I just left and started my own business too. And he introduced us uh, uh, to the owner and the rest is history. Can I ask about some of the costs associated with the services? So, you know, generally speaking, what's the cost to build from your end? Is there a sweet spot that you have? And is there sort of a breakdown or a, a, an additional cost as acting as like a general contractor versus I believe a lot of people here will just sub things out themselves to try and save that but you're now managing all of that and having to take on that responsibility. So sure, maybe um, break down some of the costs for us and, and some of the ways in which you operate. So we think of our sale price to a client on the construction side in really three different pieces. There's all of the, let's call it the hard cost of the work, the electrician, the plumber, the framer, the windows, et cetera. And those are the costs that if you are like a uh, builder developer, like you guys are, those are all of your costs. We have like two pieces on top of that. We have our general conditions, which is we put a dedicated superintendent on every project whose job it is and only job it is to run that project. Uh, And then we have some project management in the office as well. So we've got some staff costs. 
And then we have our overhead and profit on top of that. In terms of what that means in terms of real dollars, it really, really varies depending on type of project, size of project, et cetera. But we generally are, you know, within, we know what the market range is and what fair market value is for a restaurant build out versus a ground up multi-unit versus a custom single family home. And we're definitely within the parameters of kind of market range on that. Do you have a preference on what you like to build best? Single family, multifamily, I can answer that for Josh. (laughs) Please. Can I I take a guess? Well, we just, restaurants. Restaurants are a lot of fun because they are really two different projects in one. You have a back of house that is so chock full of mechanicals. And uh, uh, at Showman, I was doing laboratory work, which is really, really MEP intensive, some of the most highly technical types of construction. So you have a back of house full of that. And then you've got a front of house with like amazing interiors, high-end finishes, almost like a single family home. And they're really, really fast. I'm not sure they're actually my favorite though, Mark. I think that honestly- What about how quick they cash flow? The way that they cash flow is awesome. Yeah. Collecting money is sometimes, they don't necessarily pay as quickly as some of the other ones do. We were talking earlier about the fact that restaurants in terms of sort of like a burn rate of how much dollars of work you can put in place per month burn really fast. That if you want to be competitive in building restaurants in this city, for a small, fast, casual, you got to be able to do it in three months. For something that's medium or larger, four to five months, but certainly five months is like the outset. And if it's a you know $4 million job in five months, it's $800,000 a month. That's a pretty good burn rate versus you know if you've got a $4 million house that's going to take 15 months to do, it's just a lot less sort of... When you're making your, your profit as a percentage of your cost, the more work in place per month you can put, the more, the more money you can make. So from a business perspective, that may be best. High-end single family tends to have higher margins, though a lot more challenging to deal with on the client side. Multifamily tend to be the most straightforward to act. You ever feel like a marriage counselor when you're building custom single families? 100% of the time. 100% of the time. And uh, for those of you who haven't had the experience of doing a custom single family, you need the client to give you a decision on, hey, what is the finish on the kitchen cabinets? And one partner wants one thing, the other partner wants something totally different, and you don't really care about their process. You just want an answer. <laughs> Single-family residential doesn't tend to be as technically complex, but in terms of interpersonally and client touch is much more intensive there. It's also tough because you're dealing with a consumer who has never done this before. And I always like to say, if you don't know what you want, you better like what you get. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of times it's the first time they've seen that paint color on the wall or, you know, they picked a beautiful tile, but that beautiful tile might not go with the cabinet color for the backsplash. Totally. And, 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 and so in this like HGTV era. Anxiety. Yeah. And then this, on top of that, there's this HGTV era where people will watch Chip and Joanna Gaines and think that that makes them an expert. It's a classic example of a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. Our best clients and the ones that we enjoy working with the most have a lot of knowledge themselves and bring decisiveness and vision to the table, but also know how to listen and trust their team, 
which I think is a general principle of anybody who's ever managing a team of any kind, whether it's your own employees or third-party firms you're hiring, that there's always a fine line between sort of like your own say and trusting and listening to the people you've empowered. And there can be a pretty wide range there. But I think that honestly, Mark, our fa- my favorite projects that we do are the things that are unique and interesting and different and special and that there isn't like oh, I've done five just like this, like a shipping container office building, or we did a very cool adaptive reuse in East Boston for the Institute of Contemporary Art, where we're putting this super modern polycarbonate facade with 30-foot high folding doors into this, inserting it into a derelict shipyard. So I've been there. Can I give a quick plug? Please. Fantastic weekend activity. Come over to Eastie. Go to Down East Cider, which Stack and Company and Josh built. They have a free tasting tap room. And then walk straight across the parking lot to the Institute of Contemporary Art and help yourself to a free uh, art exhibit there too. And it is such a cool space. Thank you. I know it wasn't an easy construction process. I walked by it every single day. Tell us about some of the unique challenges that you guys came up against. So on that project, it was original. The building itself was condemned. The roof was failing. All sorts of structural problems. And all through pre-construction, the plan had been to rehab the structure, essentially add supplemental structure to what's there. And with kind of each iteration of the drawings, there was more and more rehab to be done. And then at 100% CDs, a whole lot of site and concrete grade beams got added. That was an additional like 15% beyond budget. So Here's the Institute of Contemporary Art, a well-established institution that has already booked and probably paid a lot of money to Diana Thader to install her exhibition for the summer of 2018. And the end date was hard. There was no flex on that. But now the thing's 15% over budget. So the decision was made shortly after we were supposed to start construction to actually tear the whole building down, build it new. And so like a pretty major redesign that happened without changing the end date. And that took a project that was probably like a seven or eight degree of difficulty to begin with and essentially took what should have been a nine-month schedule and compressed it to a six-month schedule. And I have never been prouder of my team in terms of how they executed. The architects there and Mahai and Winton were absolutely fantastic to work with. The ICA and their team were fantastic to work with. I think it's a great example of sort of our founding vision that in order to do really great and challenging things, you need to have architecture and construction working together hand in glove. There was never one moment on that project of, you should have done this or it should have been drawn that. That owner-architect-contractor triangle was so team-oriented, goal-oriented, decision-oriented um, that it was a pleasure to work on. And it's one of the things I'm, I'm most proud of that we've done in the last 11 years. More so just, hey, here's the problem for the day. You know, there's always going to be problems in construction. Let's solve it and work We're through it, right? We're all pulling in the same direction. Yeah, exactly. We're all on the same team here. Yeah. So cha- That's changing, lacking a can lot you, on projects. Yeah. Well, can you give us an example of any projects that you've done that that kind of triangle has not worked. Of course. I'm not going to name names, though. <laughs> Assuming that you're not part of the, you're only part of one spoke of the triangle in some, t- in some cases. It gets worse on, I, f- I find that that relationship, the larger the project, the more challenging that can become, where each leg really stands unto itself. Um, it doesn't have to be that way, certainly. I think uh, it starts 
We do a fair number of things when we're doing both the architecture and construction sort of from a standard operating procedure perspective to help do that. Like, for example, our superintendents are reviewing the drawings at DD stage and redlining them, so you're getting that field-level expertise. But even when we're working um, sort of in a more traditional just building it, it starts with mentality. It starts with everybody checking their egos at the door. Anne Mahine Winton is a really, really well-regarded design architect with a capital D. Like, they didn't get hired by the Institute of Contemporary Art by accident. And there was never a moment of highfalutins or I shouldn't have to be talking, sitting around this table with you and the sub directly that so much of it starts with with mentality. You have and, a great vocabulary. <laughs> I'm really impressed for, that, a, for a construction guy too. Uh, I don't, I don't mean to diss you like No, no, no. I, I'll, I'll take it as a compliment. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a typical background for someone in construction. I didn't grow up like banging nails with my old man. None of my, actually everyone in my family are lawyers. So that's probably where the vocabulary came from. So you're not a modern craftsman. And you're very, you don't like confrontation. We were talking about this earlier. I wouldn't say that I shy away from it because, you know, there's a certain degree of chutzpah. There's some more vocabulary for (laughs) it. I know that word. (laughs) (laughs) Why Why go out and look for it, right? That's not productive. There are some people who kind of crave conflict and view every negotiation as zero sum and either I win or and you lose or vice versa. And I really feel that most problems that exist in our business can be solved rationally with kind of a smart, intelligent solution. And we are, I actually think that one of the things that I'm best at personally is resolving conflict, de-escalating conflict, and resolving things towards a solution. An example from my personal life is that when my wife and I were buying our house, the seller refused to show up to close. And, you know, signed a PNS and everything and just didn't show up to the closing and moved. She hadn't been living there. She moved back in. It's like, I'm not selling. And so we had given up our house, our, our apartment. We had like gotten a dog. Like we were <laughs> like ready to, to, to get on with our lives. And we eventually got to the house, not through legal action, though we did pursue some of that, but by this woman, as much as she kind of uh, created a difficult period for us. She was a lonely woman who was not all there mentally, who'd had a lot of people take advantage of her over the years, and she just wanted a friend. And she was like, she was crazy. I mean, she'd go on these long rants about how she can't sell us the house because, you know, it's going to get into the media. People lose their jobs, their lives. You know, the FBI broke in and tore up my medical records, that sort of thing. And my wife just had no patience for it. And I actually found from a lot of the sort of crazy things that people will throw at you in the course of building things that I developed a lot of patience and thick skin for that and really focused on a solution that worked well for everybody and ultimately got there. And I think that, again, it's not that I'm opposed to conflict because if you don't have the balls to stand up for yourself when you need to, people are going to run over you. I just think that that's, that that's the last resort, not the first one. Yeah. Yeah, that's well put. So Josh, are you doing your own developments at all? We are right now, and we're really excited about it. And uh, um, actually, the timing of the Birth of Real Estate Addicts podcast has been great. I've been an avid listener, and Mark in particular, you've been so helpful. But uh, yeah, we are doing a four-unit project in Jamaica Plain. 
The It was an existing three-family in a two-family zone, so we got a variance to add a fourth unit, go a little bit over FAR, and we are making four really, really awesome top-of-market condos. And where are you in the process? We are in demolition right now. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. Has... Now that you're wearing a developer's hat, has that changed your perspective on some either, of the services? What's either that? architecture or construction. Right. Has that changed your perspective knowing kind of some of the pressures that you're under as a wearing a developer's hat? Of course. Of course. And that anybody who undertakes any sort of new experience and doesn't have a changed perspective from it is just like not really trying at life, I feel like. Yeah. So... A couple of examples are that, number one, some of the corners that sometimes you want to cut or that, you know, as contracts, like, oh, man, why does this guy not want us to do that? The right way to do it is, is this. And I now understand from the developer why sometimes you don't want to do that. I think that the, I actually have a newfound appreciation for the value of design in a lot of ways. Sort of like your structural guy at your office said that the trick or the magic of being a structural engineer is making sure it just barely... Sometimes as a developer, it's like there's good, better, best. This is one of my favorite spiels. Like what's actually difficult about being a developer is knowing when good is good enough. To be a developer who constantly just goes, checks the box next to Rolls Royce on every single decision, I promise you're not going to be a developer for long. So you have to know where compromises are acceptable. And like, I love to talk about actual real life examples of that, you know, be it pre-finished engineered hardwood floors uh, versus, you know, a traditional white oak nailed and stained in place, or do you have to glue down the, 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 you know, engineered floor or otherwise is it adequate to float that floor? Do you need to use chip? These decisions are not, are never ending. And and rather than just producing something that's client-driven or client-specified, now we're trying to put something together that would be most palatable for the largest potential population because they're the ones that ultimately have to buy it since it is speculative building. With the qualification that it has to have a design edge to it. Like to me, a development has to, yeah. You got to hit the ball down the middle, but you got to make nice, good contact such that it doesn't look like it came off of the aisles of Home Depot. I was working with our architect, Susanna, on some interior finishes just yesterday, and we were literally having this exact conversation where, especially because our firm does design forward work, this thing cannot be vanilla, but it's a little bit like the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm, right? You can't have, you can't make decisions where somebody, like you could nail on the rest of the project and, oh my God, that's what the bathroom looks like? Nope, I don't want it. So it's, it's a very, very difficult path to navigate. I think that one of the other differences in perspective I have is on some really inexpensive subcontractors, whereby when you're purely the general contractor, right, your role is to own risk of performance. You hire me, I'm going to make your building, a, like a certain building that doesn't exist, exist when it's supposed to, Right. And if there, if you've got, you know, three bids on plumbing between 100 and 120, and then you've got one at 60, if I'm purely GC, I'm never going to carry that $60,000 number because there's something wrong with it. There's a gotcha somewhere in there. And ultimately, I'm going to pay for that in one way, shape, or form. When I'm the developer, it's a little bit more of, I haven't transferred the risk. I don't own the risk of performance. And 
if it goes over, okay, it goes over, but like I still took the risk, so I'm like a little bit more inclined there. I, I, as, a, as a developer who GCs his own work and builds, I don't know the final cost of construction until the very last day and the very last nail is hammered in. I mean, I have a, I have a pretty good idea, and as I approach the finish line, it gets clearer and clearer, of course. But if I were to be a general contractor, I'm going to sign up that painter early. I'm going to sign up every finished trade at the very start. I'm going I'm to try to have a very strong semblance of the budget. Whereas I'm always looking for price improvements as I go. And I hope they're price improvements, but sometimes they're surprises that go in the other direction. And and it's, it's, it's always evolving. And I'm finding that being in the developer seat, you know, as when we are just building or frankly, when we're designing, we really like to have certainty, right? That's how you can make money as a service-oriented business. Hey, we've specified everything we've done. Hey, we know everything we're supposed to build. We bought it. We've installed it. We're done. In the developer seat, I have this overwhelming inclination to constantly be tinkering. Like, hey, could we do this? Should we back that out? And uh, uh, I'm actually uh, uh, using my own team internally to put a little bit of a check on me for that. But I can. I have a totally newfound appreciation for, it's not indecisiveness from developers, it's more perfectionism, if you want to call it that, whereby you always want to make sure you are making the smartest and most value conscious decisions. And that doesn't just mean like saving money. Sometimes there are things that you can do where it costs more, but it's going to generate more value. One of the decisions we made was to, rather than to shoehorn our layouts around existing bearing walls in the project, to just rip them out reframe the floors, bite the bullet. And what we have now are unit layouts that are just absolutely killer that our broker is so excited about. You know, we haven't even started marketing the project yet. And we have a fair amount of interest in it because, you know, we've got plans that really work. So I think that's an example of spending additional costs, but I'm certain that we've created the value there. No, I think, and it goes back to Mark, what you were saying about the good better, best mentality when it comes to subcontractors. You know, we we typically never will take the lowest bid, but, you know, we're not going to take the highest bid. And it's kind of balancing and coming, trying to figure out what that happy medium is. And can I hire a subcontractor that's going to perform, that's going to get the work done, it's going to get done in a good manner, the way you want to get done and the speed you want it to get done. And just kind of balancing all of those it's a balancing act. The whole, the whole, it's, it's, the you, can, whole you can't thing write an algorithm to, no. to optimize the solution. There's just so many variables on every single decision where you need to use a combination of experience, skill, little intuition, and hopefully get it right. So are you, are you hoping to build the development side of, of your firm? I think so. I think that it's, a little bit of a unique case for me where my quote-unquote day job is a related business. And I have 28 employees who need my focus for the most part to be on growing and operating the business I already have. The flip side of it is that introducing development, number one, like we're just talking about the new perspective. I already, you know, a month into the construction on the first development project. And I already feel like I am so much better of a builder by virtue of just kind of going through this whole process. You should um, revisit when you're done with the project, have a yeah. follow-up, <laughs> see how it all went. Hopefully I still feel, I still feel that way. 
And, you know, there's also an element of diversification. It's a tough slog sometimes chasing project after project, contract after contract for relatively small margins. And so there's something to be said for having another way to make money and sort of uh, potentially, if there is a nice development pipeline, creating like a whole new like sort of branch of business development almost for developing a couple projects a year. And there's a few million bucks a year of like new revenue there. That's really important to us. But I don't think that it's ever going to be at the expense of the operating business just because, you know, the operating business, I've poured my heart and soul into it for over 11 years. We've got 28 people. And the thing is just starting to get to a scale where it really makes sense. And so I think something that's a little bit different we were talking about staff cost before. And like, yes, that makes my cost to build a project more than it would be for your guys. So what that means is I can't maybe pay quite as high for the land or I might not make quite as much money. But the flip side of it is that it's not my day job and that sure, I could save $100,000 on the cost of the project by managing it myself. But if that means that it's taking 20 hours a week of my time for the next year, I could make way more than $100,000 spending that 20 hours a week. Sourcing new deals. Sourcing new deals, hiring people, training people, developing new business, working on our standard operating procedures. So, No, I think it's smart. I think it's smart doing, uh, you know, not... Focus on your core business. You know, you're good at what you're good at. Don't well, don't let go of it. And you're not jumping into six projects at once, you know, right off the bat. You're well, doing I, I one. I have a question about that though. Sure. So if you're if you're starting to do a lot more development deals, you know, as a client that wants to come in and, and ask you to to do a project for me, and you have, you know, your team working on your projects and your developments, you know. Would I be concerned about, should I be concerned about you kind of taking resources away from my project and putting them to yours? I think that anybody who in this market isn't concerned about does their contractor have the bandwidth or focus to work on my project is fooling themselves. I think a lot of the way I would answer that question, somebody would put it to me, comes down to integrity and reputation and that I know it's a little bit old school, but we take our commitments very, very seriously. We very often lose projects because we give an honest price and an honest schedule up front. And we lose them to guys who will say, oh, um, so a project with somebody you and I were talking about earlier, Mark. Yeah. We won't name names here, but we initial walkthrough was like, no way, that's 225 a foot. Very complicated project. That's going to be at least 265. Other guy got the job at 225 and with all the change orders, ended Mm -hmm. up at 275, right? And so um, I think that if you are consistently honest and consistently make only those commitments that you know you can fulfill... And that when, you know, you make sure that expectations are clear, like, hey, this is certain, this is maybe, this is not at all. I think that that ultimately catches up with you such that you come to me and say, hey, can you do this project? When I say yes, that there's the reputation and track record to know that when I say yes, the answer is yes. That's funny. We had Tim White join us a number of episodes ago. And uh, Tim's a contractor and we were chatting and he was bemoaning the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of people have a Rolodex of professionals that they rely upon without pause, 
This is my accountant. That is my lawyer. He is my dentist. I don't hard bid those services. They're people that I know will deliver at a cost, at a fair markup. But for whatever reason, there is, let's call it a stigma in the world of contracting. Maybe maybe mechanics and contractors suffer from this the most. It's just this notion of like asymmetrical information. And I feel as though I'm always getting screwed. I being the consumer. And there's no way I'm going to get a fair price unless I get three of them. Yes, and, and, and that, it is a weird world. And that's something, especially when we are doing both architecture and construction, that's a question that clients have, which is, hey, how do I know I'm going to get a fair price? And the reality is, we were talking before about there's like all of your hard costs, you got your staff costs, and then there's the overhead and profit, right? That first bucket is 80, 85% of the cost, and that is all work that we are going to bid out, get multiple bids on from the qualified right guys that, you know, who I'd use for, you know, our four unit in JP. Is it all open book? Will you show that you show your clients all the bid tabs in the backup? For negotiated work? Absolutely. Yeah. So the cost of construction, all the inputs that the plumbing, the electrical, they're all, there's a, a, a very transparent process. 100%. And we are making sure to get fair market pricing on that. And then the way we'd like to try to operate is, okay, we were going to do that. We were going to charge you a fair cost for some really professional staff. We're going to knock it out of the park and we're going to make some money on it. And that we, uh, uh, when clients are bought in, that we are going to make our stated fee as it's shown. We don't need to charge a hundred grand for plumbing when it's actually 80. So going back to your development deal, how did you underwrite that deal? Is it your first deal? Tell us what your underwriting process was like. Yeah, so... Um, Josh emailed me. And, <laughs> <laughs> and you send him a spreadsheet. It was, <laughs> no, it was actually Thanksgiving weekend last year, I remember. I shot Mark my pro forma. I'm like, hey, Mark, what do you think about this? Expecting to hear back a week later. And then two hours later, his edits came back. But uh, Do you know what I always do, though, when I get that? I always have to put it into my own pro forma template. Of course. I can't ever look at someone Engage else's. Engage with somebody oh, else's. I have my that. own spreadsheet, and I, I can't think unless it's in that <laughs> format. So before I can speak intelligently, just regurgitate it onto this. Well, yeah. and then and then you see what the differences are because yeah, half, half the time when I plug their stuff in, I'm always making like two hundred thousand dollars less, and I don't know what <laughs> yeah, happened. Like, Ray, Ray, I think there's an error with the formula. <laughs> I think that part of being a general contractor is that you're never gonna know as much about any trade as you're never gonna know as much about electrical as your electrician. You're never gonna know as much about plumbing as a plumber. And as a GC, what you need to do is be fluent enough with all of them. And also know who to call, who to ask when you have a question on something. So I approach my first development from the same perspective, which is, hey, I know a fair amount. Let me get to a starting point. Now, who in my network are people who, because like we're talking about a whole new level of risk and investment here, and I'm not going to do that just because, you know, I think I can do this the first time perfect. Who in my network can I reach out to help? So Two of our investors are developers who we have built for before and sort of got their two cents on it. Mark's two cents were very helpful. A couple of their developers work with. So honestly, I pulled a lot of smart people and tried to pull the best information from all of them to assemble something that like that made sense. And, you know, knock on wood, we're in good shape so far. I mean, that that's exactly the way you should have done it. 
You know, right. you don't want to be a cowboy and try to do it on your own. It's you, you want to reach out to your network and you want to go to those experts that have done it before and have those spreadsheets that they've developed over the last five to 10 years. And have done a ton of them and have like done them successfully before. And in your market, because, your you know, market. you can look up resources online. Oh, how much does it cost per foot to install hardwood? And it can vary. I mean, hardwood maybe is a bad example, but just overall build costs. I mean, of course, it's and, crazy yeah, how different it to is. To say nothing of the permitting and entitlement process, which yes. is so unique from yes. city to city, as we talk about a lot. I think we always say the yeah. entitlement process is the hardest. Building it isn't that hard at all. It's yeah. just going through the motions. Totally. And especially given my background, the financial modeling, the financing, and the entitlement was where I felt sort of like the steepest learning curve. Now that we're into construction and it's like, okay, now here's the Comfort thing zone. that where I like, I have a or- whole organization that knows how to do this and frankly knows how to do it better than I could anyway. It, it feels uh, uh, very de-risked for me. I think my favorite quote from 30 episodes here is uh, Mark Lacasse, episode two. I don't know why people call it the entitlement process in Boston, because you ain't entitled to nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, I would say um, once, you, once you're in this phase of the construction, I mean, to Dan's point earlier or question earlier, will, will you get preferential treatment you know, with any, anybody there? I don't even think that's the case. I think they would just be like super excited to be building something for you, just knowing that it's for you too, you know? Yeah, and I think that uh, I'm finding that I am better able to service developer clients, even if we're just building or designing and building, having this additional perspective and sort of like the additional understanding that comes from, you know, having been in that seat myself. You're better as a contractor. I feel as though the design is something which must you must have learned a lot through that community process, whereby you're presenting iterative designs to consecutive neighborhood groups and and and, and abutters and such. To me, good design was one thing, and it's something that I really liked. And as I've developed evolved as a developer, I think I've come to realize it's not about me. It's not about my ego. It's about what everyone else likes and is approvable. Is that something that you saw? Felt it. And I think probably our architecture team was frankly a little deflated from it, whereby uh, uh, the the project that's getting built is still something we're really, really excited about. But man, that first version, we yeah. still look at the render of that and we're like, oh man, that one would have been really, really killer. It's a shame too, but it's what it is. And uh, the city is owned by variants. If you want to play the game, then. Um, you know, get rid of your very contemporary rocket ship, uh, exciting glass buildings. Or just uh, build things that are as of right, yeah, that's but that's too. essentially impossible. So so maybe that's why some of the, the projects end up looking a little more bland. And, and is that almost a reason why people blame us for building boxes? Hardy plank box. Because it's kind of a, a little bit of function of hitting the ball straight down the middle. It doesn't offend anybody. Mm. Sometimes good design has a tendency to uh, evoke responses and... I think sometimes it's it's passion and love and other times maybe it's people who don't like that style, but that's... Yeah. I did ask, do you have a different perspective now that you're wearing the developer hat? Let me turn the tables real quick. Looking at us, is there something that we should be a little more cognizant of and, and you know, play a little more fairly of, uh, you know, when working with a design build firm or whether it's on the construction side or more so, I, I think my question is more so targeted just to the design side. Should we... Boy, that's that's a great question. Let go in some areas. 
I don't think I've got a specific answer more than just sort of the general checking ego at the door always and listening and trusting to advice that is given to you. And like, yes, as the owner, you're the decision maker. But I don't think that uh, uh, any service provider ever wants to feel marginalized or feel like their opinions aren't valued or uh, uh, because there are some times and there are moves that we've made on our project where our architecture team really pushed. And I was sort of opposed at first, but now that we're there, I'm really glad that we're doing it. So overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? Let's start off with solar panels. Underrated. That there is an energy crisis in our country that is only going to get worse with time. And while not perfect by any means, any source of on-site renewable energy I'm in favor of. Modular construction. Ooh. So we have some modular experience and some good, some not so good. Uh, The last modular project we did, we gave the factory a relatively sizable deposit. They never did anything and then went out of business. So that was not the the greatest experience. Uh, I'm going to say that it's appropriately rated, that there are certain projects that lend themselves very well to modular. And And if you're willing to sort of like design around modular, it can be great. But I think that that's a relatively small number of projects and that um, especially in an urban environment, uh, it's not the right fit for everything. Purchasing a subcontracting business. It's very niche. That's love, a, is that a question? <laughs> I love to talk about doing this. Mark this wants is like to be one a of these things where I always talk about buying a building in Lynn and buying a uh, site and utility uh, subcontracting. You know, I'm going to go ahead and say underrated that subs margins fluctuate with the economy more quickly than GCs do. But in this market, they are making really good money and that there are very few who have the right combination of price point, expertise, service, and professionalism such that when there are good ones, they get ridden hard. So I'm going to go, I'm going to say underrated, Mark. I like it. I also feel that like the subcontracting world is kind of dominated by a lot of folks with gray hair and maybe our parents' age, and there aren't a lot of folks who are stepping into those shoes. So I think that the opportunity ahead, if you could take those businesses and build some processes around them, you could do very well. It's not going anywhere. How about charging stations within development? I'm going to also call that underrated, but that's, again, I'm thinking long-term, what is best? vehicle charging? Yeah. Okay. EV charging. My guess is like when I... The subsidies are incredible for it right now, by the way. Are they? Yeah. As a developer? Yes. Really? Yeah. Almost free. We should talk about it. Yeah. I rarely see them actually being used, but I'm again going to always advocate for things that are good for our world long term, even if it's maybe not... An economic benefit. Yeah. Or a break even. Yeah. Hiring a general contractor to oversee a project in the three to six unit space? I think it's appropriately rated um, that we that it really depends on your model and that it's obviously going to be less expensive if you don't hire a GC and you want to hire subs yourself, which I, I think a lot of the listeners to this podcast are probably in that mode. And I totally, totally get that. The flip side comes with scale and complexity that you're not 
Maybe you can do two projects at a time like that. You're certainly not going to do three, four, five projects at a time. And you're certainly not going to be doing, especially without like extensive experience yourself, you're not going to be doing deep foundations, cantilever, structural steel. So I think that uh, every project is different. Every developer is different. And there are definitely times where hiring a good GC, de-risking it, paying a little bit of a premium, but having certainty of outcome, transfers of risk, and not to mention the hours and hours and hours of your time are worth it. Change orders. (laughs) From whose perspective? (laughs) Your your perspective. (laughs) Well, I think that there definitely is perception that GCs use that as a profit center. And there are definitely GCs who do, who use that as a kind of run up the score kind of mentality. Like Uh, your $60,000 plumber. (laughs) That's right. I know that for us, and maybe this is just like our mindset because most of our work is negotiated and it's not like, oh, hard bid, you got us at a low number. Now the change orders start flowing. We don't really, I think when you add it all up, make all that much money, if anything, on change orders. And uh, um, uh, uh, especially when the change order required tens of hours of project management to do to get a 10% markup on a $7,000 item. It's like, all right, I spent a couple of man days of an expensive resources time for $700 and it slowed my project down. It's again, I think that because of the way we work, I would much rather not have a lot of change orders. So last one on my end, roof decks. Where are we? Metro Boston. Underrated. We're doing a really cool project at Dorchester Brewing right now, which doesn't have like, you know... You built the coolest roof deck I've ever seen. Which one? It's a, one of those confidential addresses. What do you think, a $400,000? Incredible. Uh, no, no expense spared. Um, that one is really, really bespoke and amazing. That was for one of our uh, custom single family clients. But so how about we just talk from like on a developer hat? Uh, from, perspective, <laughs> not like an unlimited budget perspective. I think that it's appropriately rated. I think that in practice, like we're here in Southie, we see the roof decks all the time. And I think that it's a marketable amenity that get people to, you know, pay a little bit of a premium. I don't think they get used all that often. 100% agree. And they, they do send up a lot of red flags during that permitting and community process, whereby folks just perceive a roof deck as a party deck. And uh, as terrible as this sounds, a lot of folks who can afford a penthouse with a roof deck don't throw rager parties. Yeah, I would, I would as a personally as a buyer in my own mind, but I would rather prefer a really, really nice outdoor space off of my living space than having to schlep up one or two flights. Who says you have to pick? What? Who says you have to pick one or the other? <laughs> Come on. No, I, I, I could not agree more on that, where when you have a deck space that's especially like right off the kitchen, it's absolutely killer. One of the changes that we had to make to our project in JP was there's four units. We wanted private outdoor space for all of them. The two that were on the upper levels, we had decks right off the kitchen and we had to convert one of them to a roof deck. And I don't think that that unit is as good as it. Now it's like a roof deck, not an outdoor living space. People want that indoor outdoor. Yeah, yeah. And like, I think like when we entertain cooking, it's like got to bring the meat to the grill and got to have a couple bottles of wine out there. And oh, can you get me another beer from the fridge? And just the lower the activation energy, the the more you're going to use it. The more laziness, the better. That's right. I mean, summertime, uh, uh, you're drinking. I agree. I agree. agree. Well, one last question. 
prediction for the New England Patriots. How will they end the season? They are going to drop one game along the way here. They already have. One more. Okay. And then the Buffalo Bills are going to come into Gillette and beat them, win the AFC East. <laughs> the Patriots will be playing on the road wildcard weekend and maybe lose. But, you know, the important thing is, is the Bills glory here that I'm working in. Wait, 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 wait a second. <laughs> How I love will the it. Bills win the AFC East? That's the, all, you know, hey. I love it. That's it. The Bills are one game plus a head-to-head win behind the Patriots right now. This will air in uh, a number of weeks, and so... Oh, God. You know, <laughs> pressure if the, is if on the Patriots have already prediction. clinched the division, day, then, then we're actually going to edit this episode. It has been, Today is November 20th. It has been a very rough last 20 years, 25 years, being a Buffalo Bills fan. I've stuck with it. My brother, who's also born and raised in Western New York, is raising his children as Patriots fans. And I think that that is like the worst thing that that my brother has ever done, that this has been... uh, New England fans are so, so spoiled. And I'm a Red Sox fan and I'm a Celtics fan and a Bruins fan, but it's, but you know, Buffalo Bills, I'm, I'm sticking with, with my upbringing. <laughs> this there. could cost you some business around here. <laughs> we'll sign off. If folks want to get a hold of Stack and Company, find your business. Website is stackac.com. A is in architecture, C is in, as in construction. And on Instagram, we're at stack.and.co. Beautiful. Awesome. Sweet. Hey, thanks everybody for listening, subscribing, following, sharing, and providing any uh, thoughts and feedback. You can always email us at therealestateaddicts at gmail.com and we'll check in with everybody on the next one. We'd love to hear from you. Go Pats. Go Pats. Thanks everyone.